This is what today, a place called Caesarea Philippi many, many years ago looks like. It's just a ruins. It's now a national park. All right? It's about, I don't know, 25 miles maybe north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and uh, one of the origination points of the Jordan River. So this, uh, it, was, it started to be called Caesarea um, about 20 years before Jesus was born. So at the, at the time later in the Jesus' ministry, it had been around for like 40, 40 years or so. And, uh, and it became kind of more of a city center when uh, the land was annexed, or the city was annexed to, to Herod. And then Herod built this big temple that was intended to honor his benefactor, which was Caesar, okay? So Herod was kind of a regional leader, oversaw um, kind of the, the land of Judea, but Caesar was the big Roman guy in charge of everything. And so then, um, Caesar Augustus at the time, uh, the story goes, the, the details are a little bit fuzzy, but eventually his son Philip was, like, given the city, which... We think it looks like it was a birthday present, so nothing says privilege like my dad gave me a city for my birthday. Uh, so, so anyways, this is what we've got. So literally, the, the city, Caesarea Philippi, Philip's Caesarea, right? Okay, and, and Caesar, Caesarea, Caesar, right? So, so there's this big temple, this big monument built to Caesar as king and lord, all right, that Herod built, or Herod and his family um, did to honor them. But here's the thing, before it was Caesarea Philippi, everybody around would have known it for generations as Penea, okay? And the reason they knew it as Penea was because it was a, a, a land that was dedicated, if you look, and what I just showed you was over here, if you look over on the left side, there's this huge cave, and it was dedicated to the, the uh, Greek god Pan, all right? And so here's, here's the interesting thing, so what you're looking at is called um, the Grotto of Pan, or Pan's Grotto. And in this area was all of these idols from all of um, this mixture of Greek and Roman, the Greek and Roman gods. And, and Pan was kind of the, the, the ruler of them at this point in terms of this, this specific place was built to honor him, but it was full of all these idols. And the, the reason was because Pan was the god of fertility. This was not a PG town at all. Um, but in that cave, there's a big pool it was a spring that sprang up from deep, and the legend was that nobody had ever been to the bottom of it, okay? And so, so what the, the belief was, was that when all of the gods in the winter, and there was no fertile ground, right? Nothing happened. So all of the gods went down into this spring, and it was what led to Hades, okay? The, the land of the dead. And they stayed there during the winter until it was time for them to reemerge. And so this, this little pool was called the, gate, the Gates of Hades, all right? And, uh, and so, so that's our, our staging. So we've got this land in our story today that, uh, that was dedicated to Pan as this, this god of fertility and, um, and everything, and this place called the Gates of, of Hades. But at the same time, we've also got this monument to the, the king of the time. So you've got all this spirituality stuff, and then you've got all of this political stuff. Um, and all of it was about praise and worship and power, and allegiance, yeah? So, Jesus decides to take his disciples for a walk. And, uh, and here's, here's where we're going we're gonna to pick up. Um, well, no, it's important, before we even say this, it's important to bring us up to speed on what's happening right before we get to, Matt, to Mark 8, 
and you've heard a lot of it. But what's happening is that Jesus, right, they're in the kingdom, hardcore kingdom of Caesar right now, and Jesus has been talking about a kingdom that is different altogether. You know this. This is not brand new news. He's been talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to learn and trust in the kingdom of God as he is presenting it. And it's, you know, some of it's gone well. Some of it's been like really exhausting, as we've seen. Um, this is hard work. And, and it's hard to tell if anyone is really getting it. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where it's like, I'm trying to be clear, but people just don't seem exactly to be hearing me, all right? Um, When you've got a mission like Jesus's and a story like his, uh, it sure brings up some big questions. At this point in the ministry, Jesus had gathered some crowds for sure. He had proclaimed lots of things about this kingdom of God and about what he came to do, but people kept coming to him because they wanted to be healed physically, which was certainly a part of the expression, but we know that Jesus was like, I'm here for something bigger than healing, you know, 250 people over the course of a couple years. Like, it was bigger than this. Those were signs to something. And then people were coming because he did this, these miracles twice in Mark where he creates food and multiplies food. And so they go and they say, maybe we'll get one of these food miracles because we want food. Not bad things, but that's where the crowds were coming from. And often Jesus is frustrated and a little bit tired from all of it. And so, and then on top of all of that, all the religious people, the ones who ought to know better, who had dedicated their lives to knowing God, had almost completely unilaterally rejected Jesus. So just sit with the emotions of this story for a moment. Those people, the ones who ought to know, they showed no openness to learning or hearing from God. They had God already figured out. His new revelations of the new revelations of Jesus, right? It didn't fit into their religious equation, and they didn't desire to learn new math, right? So this is this is the storyline that's leading up to this. It's hard to stay confident when that's been the story, you know? I can just imagine. And and things are starting to get serious. The the uh The opposition is starting to pick up. And this section of Mark is the beginning of a new journey. It's the journey of the disciples with Jesus on the way to the cross. Right here in Mark is when they begin to turn toward Jerusalem. And it's not just a spatial journey. It's a journey from the more human perspective to the more divine perspective that we see Jesus trying to inch his disciples toward. It's a journey from popularity toward radical and marginalized. So... We enter the land of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is walking along and he's looking around. And it's likely, we don't know, but it's likely that he paused right within view of all that I just showed you. So here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, when we say things like this, when we're talking about villages right now, do you understand how small this region was? You're talking about villages that's like, I'm going to go to the next village I'll be back in like 45 minutes. And you walk over there and you turn. These are tiny little tribal outcroppings. Even Caesarea Philippi, not a big place. Okay? Um, So they're in this region. And on the way, as they're walking through this region, maybe within sight, I think so, but who knows. Certainly there's a knowledge of this. And by the way, Jewish people would have stayed so far away from Caesarea Philippi. 
because of all the idolatry and just overall grossness of what was happening, okay? Um, I won't, like, show you some of the, uh, of, of the, the statues of Pan, um, but, but it's just so far away from them. But Jesus brings them through this. All right. And on the way, he pauses, and he asks a question, and he asks this. Who do people say that I am? Okay. He asks his disciples, who, who are people saying? Like, he's looking at this world drenched in the kingdoms of people. And he says, who do people say I am? Now, we don't know what motivates this question. Is Jesus, see, what we, we, we assume something because of our, of our reading, um, of our way of looking at things, where we pretty much always lead with the divinity of Jesus, where Jesus always has everything figured out. And it's always, there's always purpose behind everything, which is often true. But sometimes we overlook the potential humanity of all of this. Like, is Jesus discouraged? You know, I don't know. Is he, is he, we know that throughout his ministry, he had to wrestle with his own identity. Is he wrestling with it here? You know, have I been doing this effectively? You know, I know the crowds are not only misunderstanding, but are the disciples misunderstanding too? You know, we don't know, was he struggling internally with the clarity of the message or his mission, uh, we might want to just pause and be reminded of the radical humanity of Jesus in a question like that. Maybe needing, maybe needing to say, friends, I just want to hear what you think. Is, is, am I getting the job done or not? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but uh, maybe, you know, maybe he's quizzing his disciples. That's certainly the most common view of this. Maybe it's both. But maybe he's just checking to see if anybody gets what's, what's really going on. And they answer. Here's the answer. Some people say John the Baptist, which is an interesting, weird answer. Um, uh, scholars aren't quite sure what to do with this. But, you know, there wasn't like facial recognition around this time. So John the Baptist had been killed. But nobody knows what these people look like, right? So some people are like, well, you know, we believe that John the Baptist was this prophet. Some thought John the Baptist, remember, was the potential Messiah. He had to dissuade them from that and say, no, no, that's not me. It's someone who'll come after me. So this guy comes along. John the Baptist has just been killed, but some people thought he was the Messiah. So it's a very interesting precursor to a resurrection story. Some people think, well, maybe the spirit of John the Baptist has kind of come back. So that's what some people are saying. Other people are saying uh, Elijah, right? Um, and the reason for that is that in the final verse of the book of Malachi, our last book of the Old Testament, Malachi says that when the day of the Lord comes, Elijah will return and initiate kind of the, the, the next era, okay? Um, the, the way forward uh, that that he'll usher in the age to come. So some have been looking for Elijah, and they think that's him. So everybody's got an opinion. Woo! There's, there's just, everybody's got an opinion on Jesus. And Jesus just listens. Jesus just listens. We don't know how long. All we get is a conversation, but we don't know if it was rapid fire or if he just sits there. Who do people say that I am? Huh. Huh. Is he, is he asking, I wonder how they came to that conclusion? Is he saying, well, they're on to something? Is he saying, how could people get it so wrong? You know, uh, we don't know how he contemplated these. We know that they, 
they all point to Jesus being some sort of a prophet of God, but none of those people really get, really get what's happening at the time. What about the ones that know him best? So he turns to his disciples and he asks them another question. Actually, actually he doesn't turn to his disciples. I, wanna, I want you to notice this. Here's all we get. And, and by the way, we're talking about an Aramaic conversation that was then translated into Greek that we're translating into English. Okay? So just keep that in mind when we're trying to figure out the uh, implications of words. Um, but uh, so, so here's what happens. Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus looked over at Peter and asked. He doesn't say he leaned toward his disciples and asked. All we get is just this confrontational question that we as readers have no option but to face head on. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? We can't defer this. Like, it's, almost like, it's almost like Mark, as he's writing this, is like, this question needs to sit in a different kind of a way than the narrative does. We're no longer in a story all of a sudden. What about you? We just can't ignore this in-your-face moment. But Peter is the one that speaks up. And Peter speaks up, and here's, here's his hero shot, right? Peter needs one because, man, is going to fall fast from this point. But Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Messiah, right? We all go, woo! Because we know this is coming, because in Mark 1, Jesus is called the Messiah, and, it's, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting until somebody else acknowledges it in, in terms of, of correctly here. And so Christ and Messiah, same, same, same uh, when you go from one language to another, same thing. So the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who was to come, the one with the Spirit of God who would bring God's kingdom, all right? And so it's this amazing moment, right? He gets it right, and he tells it straight to Jesus. And there is great rejoicing, actually not in this version. In the book of Mark, it just sits there. Why? We don't exactly know. But in the book of Mark... Peter answers, you are the Messiah, and Jesus doesn't say much except for tells them, don't mention this at this point. We're going to get to that in a second. But, uh, but it's, it's fascinating. Some people think um, that because it's so obviously correct, right, Mark doesn't need to include an affirming word. It's just so obviously right. So why add more words there? It's, it's clear, right? Other people think that, that because Peter was factually correct, but we're going to find out in a second that he didn't really get it, that Jesus wasn't ready to offer the full affirmation yet. But I will say that Matthew is not quite as cryptic. Um, and so, so uh, in Mark, the messiahship of Jesus is really secretive. It's called the Messianic Secret, and it's all through the, that book. It's, there, there's something to that that Mark wants to communicate. Jesus' secret identity is going to be revealed. Matthew, not quite as much. So we're going to take a look at Matthew's real quick because it can enlighten us toward this story just a little, but also there's something super, super cool about what I talked about at the beginning that's worth hearing. Okay, and then we're going to get to this. Um, so, all right, in Matthew, there is a reply from Jesus. Okay, so Peter says, you are the Messiah, and then 
Jesus does respond, and it's a much more hopeful feel in the way that um, Matthew is expressing this story. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, my, but by my Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, listen, this wasn't just a good idea. You actually got a straight connection with God's heart to be able to see this. And then he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and literally the word is, I tell you that you are rock, or the rock, or a rock, or rocky, which is really kind of what it's like, because he was playing with words, um, a common name, um, but also a name that meant rock. And on my rock, or on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, which is so interesting because we take this and we metaphorize it totally. But Jesus is talking to Peter at a place that was well known to have the gates of Hades right here. So, so Jesus is in front of this entire world, right? In this entire world where, where on one side you've got all of the spiritualities of the world and on the other side you've got all the political powers of the world and they're all kind of founded and worshipped in this idea of the gods coming and going. And he says, listen, this little movement that we're starting, not, not even all the gods of the Greek and Roman world coming and going can overcome it. One scholar says, paraphrases the last sentence like this, the doors of the world of death will not be stronger than the church is. Jesus is in the belly of the beast right now. And he's saying, the church, this tiny little vulnerable thing of people learning to love me as Lord and love one another, it's stronger even than this when they are founded on the declaration that Jesus is Lord. As long as they understand what it means. So let's go back to Mark. All right, so in Mark... Peter answers, you're the Messiah, and Jesus warns them not to tell anybody. I mentioned this before, okay? Both Matthew and Mark, same thing. A call to silence. Again, some think maybe people need to come to their own conclusions about Jesus or it just won't work. If the disciples go all over the place and say, this is exactly who Jesus is, you should just hear about it and, and, and believe, maybe it won't work unless people have to come to their own conclusions by seeing Jesus at this time. Um, or, or maybe, like I said earlier, since Peter was about to show that he didn't quite get it, Jesus didn't want him spreading an incomplete gospel. I find both of those compelling, but once again, we're not told exactly what's happening. Or maybe the implications of Jesus being the Messiah in such a place would be such a threat to the power brokers of the world. This is an important one because of where they're at both the political and the religious, that Jesus knows it's not time yet and he has to get to Jerusalem first before he gets hunted down because something really important has to happen in Jerusalem. And so now's not the time. Now's not the time. It'll create too much tension and I won't even be able to make it to Jerusalem because that's where the climactic moment of the whole gospel is. So anyways, a literary critic would call this indirection. The reader is not given direction for what exactly is going on. So what that leads us to is to be a little bit puzzled and to lean into the story more and to be compelled to read on, to find out and discover what is in Peter's words after he utters his declaration. Does he understand his own declaration? Do we understand his own declaration? You are the Messiah. What does it look like? Um, and it doesn't take us long to see. 
that for Peter's confession, the facts are there. Maybe even the heart is there on Peter's behalf. But there's something big missing, and that's a true grasp of what it looks like for Jesus to be the Messiah for Peter and for the whole world. Um, because we're told that when, when Jesus may be energized, I think so, may be energized by Peter's correct answer, starts to explain, we bump into a, road bo- a roadblock. So after Peter explain, exclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, it says, then he, or he then, meaning Jesus, began to teach them that the, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is important. He spoke plainly about this. So this is the first time that he's not speaking in metaphor and he's not speaking in images. He's saying, you understand that I'm the Messiah, so let me help you understand the road to come. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter then, whoops, did I get it right? There it is, sorry. And, uh, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter's like, oh, Jesus, man, you, I know you're the Messiah, but you're getting the story wrong. Right? And I love that when we talked about this as a pastoral team um, earlier this week, Sabrina was like, man, if that isn't humanity, because somebody gets something right, right? They get some, they get a clear view of something, and then they just get, they just try to take control. They just get so arrogant, right? And now I've got it all figured out. So Peter gets something right, and all of a sudden he knows all about God. But he says, Jesus, this, this, this isn't how it's supposed to work. Like, what are you talking about dying? We just We just established that you are the one to set up God's kingdom, the one to rescue us. Like, what's going on here? And and so so Jesus then rebukes Peter. This whole narrative, by the way, is uh, is linked. It's so fascinating. This whole narrative at the end of of Mark 8 is linked to what happens right before this, which is this little story where this guy is blind. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus, we're not going to get into the spitting on the hands thing, and there's a whole story behind that, but that's not for today. But Jesus puts his hand on the guy's eyes. And do any of you know what happens in this story? Do you remember? He opens his eyes. He's been blind. And Jesus says, can you see anything? And he goes, sort of, but everybody looks like trees. So he must not have been blind from birth. It must have been some sort of a disease or something. But he's like, I can see. So Jesus like, it's like a half, it's like when you put the microwave on the 50%, right? You know, and, which, and to, if you need to melt butter or something like that. Like, because he doesn't get it all the way there. He does, and he does a miracle that doesn't work. The guy opens his eyes like, well, I mean, everybody's like, like, is this, is this right, Jesus? Is this, is this being healed? I, I guess so. I don't want to be ungrateful, but like, I, I'm still going to need glasses. So, so Jesus then touches him a second time. This is the only time in the scriptures that anything even remotely close to this happens. And after he touches him a second time, the guy says, now I can see clearly. And so, so this is intended to be a story where Peter gets partial sight because he understands that Jesus is Lord, but he does not truly understand what it means that Jesus is Lord doesn't truly understand the implications of a, of a Messiah who will show God's heart by the self-giving, self-sacrificing nature. It's not power over, it's power from under. And so, so Peter still does not get this, and Jesus has to rebuke him because Peter says, no, you can't die, that's not how victory works. And Jesus says, yes, it is. And I think we still don't get that in the church today. The nature of the kingdom of God looks like giving 
of ourselves, not taking control and taking power. Do we understand what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Do we let Jesus heal us over and over, second time, third time, fourth time, till we finally start to see what this kingdom of God is all about, how upside down it truly is, how humble it is? So Jesus turns and he totally hits hard here. You're acting like my adversary, Jesus says to Peter. You're not focused on God's kingdom. You're thinking of things from this human victory way, right? The kingdom of God is one of walking into death and resurrection. That's the victory. You're concerned with a victory that looks like crowds and success and power and influence. Step down, Peter. Rebuke met with rebuke. It might be the harshest statement to a disciple that Jesus makes in all of the uh, Gospels. Because if this thing isn't gotten right with his followers, everything else will go wrong. This question, if it's not gotten right with the followers, everything else will go wrong. Who do you say that I am? Um, Peter's a reminder of the truth for us, right? That we can see Jesus as the Messiah, but we're still not seeing clearly over and over and over again. We've been touched by Jesus, but not enough. Jesus continues on uh, in, in this story, and we, want, we just don't have time to get to dive into this deeply, but he goes on to talk about how those who follow him will learn to carry their cross. Uh, they will learn to lay their lives down and lose their lives in order to save them. It's cryptic. It's overwhelming, but once you actually see the story like we have the opportunity to, there's no denying what that means. Laying our lives down for the sake of God's heart, for the sake of one another, is what the kingdom looks like. And if we can't understand that Jesus is that suffering servant, we can't truly be his disciples. He has really harsh language there. He says, if you're going to redefine if you're going to redefine this whole thing of what it means for me to be Lord, I'm not going to be able to recognize you. And you're not going to be able to be my, one of my people. This movement will not work if you found it on power over instead of the upside down kingdom. So uh, I think this story helps me and, and maybe all of us from becoming conceited a little bit. We might feel like we have a glimpse of the real Jesus, which is good. I believe that you do. Um, but even we can refuse to allow Jesus to be the suffering servant, the self-giving Messiah. We want a victorious Lord most of the time, not a crucified one. We want our best life now, like Joel Osteen loves to say, right? Or he'd love to say. I haven't listened to anything he said for 20 years, so I'm not sure what he says these days. Um, but we want that best life now, not lifting a cross and following the suffering servant. That's a lot harder, and that lies, therein lies the secret. It's a lot harder, but it's worth it. It's time for me to talk about this again. I have this weird love, weird love, for an old book written in 1955 by Hannah Hernard called Hind's Feet on High Places. It's an allegory about the Christian life, and it's very simple, very simple story, but I find it, I am like weirdly, like I cannot pick up this book without crying. It's a very unique experience. I don't know why I feel like there could be something that is exact parallel in every other way, and I'd be like, meh. But for whatever reason, this book hits me hard, and I read it about once every year and a half or so. Um, and 
and there's this story. It's the story of this, this, uh, this girl called Much Afraid is her name. And she, she is on a journey with the great shepherd to the high places. And it's about, it's about discipleship. And it's what she learns along the way. And on her way, she can't walk straight. She has a deformity. Um, so, so she's always limping and, and struggling. And on her way, he helps give her new insights. And at one point, she says, you know, I've always heard these streams in the low places that are coming from the higher places. I've always heard like, like a language or a sound, like they're singing. But I don't know what they're saying. And the great shepherd opens her ears and lets her hear the sound of the water that's been coming down the waterfalls from the high places. And here's what they say. Come, oh come, let us away. Lower, lower every day. Oh, what joy it is to race down to find the lowest place. This, the dearest law we know, it is happy to go low. Sweetest urge and sweetest will, let us go down lower still. Hear the summons night and day calling us to come away. From the heights we leap and flow to the valleys down below, always answering the call to the lowest place of all. Sweetest urge and sweetest pain, to go low and rise again. And this is the story. And now every time I see a waterfall, all I think about is the journey to the lowest place that the water seeks and then rising to the highest place as the sun comes out and as it evaporates again. And that this is the beauty of a journey with Jesus, that we actually get filled up with what Jesus does to set our own spirits free on a very deep, personal, spiritual, mystical way. That Jesus rescues us and saves us and forgives us. But that filling up from the high places we then take down to make ourselves among the lowest place. To love and care for those who are suffering and wounded and poor. To become people who are humble and do not hold our power over but seek to elevate by coming under. This, this is the story. It's so beautiful and it's so challenging. When we trust that Jesus was who he said he was and we keep that declaration of Jesus is Lord, the suffering Lord, the Lord who teaches us to lay down our lives, we will find such joy like the water flowing down even as we learn to lay down our lives. But we need to let Jesus keep healing us toward clarity. That's been like the phrase, and it's a weird one, I know, I know. Um, But it's been the phrase that sat with me Inviting Jesus to keep healing us toward clarity of what this kingdom is. Because we have to learn. Um, I saw somewhere recently someone said, you know, the smartest people in the world aren't the ones that are constantly learning, but the ones that are constantly unlearning. We've learned so many things about the way that the world works and the way that we work and um, what uh, allegiance to country or, or dominant culture looks like. Like, we have to unlearn so many things and we have to help, we have to constantly let Jesus be healing us toward clarity. Um, and once we decide who Jesus is, when we hear those words, who do you say that I am? Once we decide that, and if we continue to let Jesus continue to chip away at our definition, it will change everything about what we decide our lives will be about. And if our foundation is anything short of Jesus as Lord at the center, we're going to run into problems, friends. If you love the church primarily because uh, it's just so great to be a part of community, and I, be- I believe it's really great to be a part of community, but if, if that's like the reason that you love the church, then, then someone's going to let you down or someone's going to say something you don't like and you're going to bolt. 
um, you want to give up. If, if you're a Christian primarily so that you get to heaven when you die, and that is your, your full understanding of what it means to, to say, Jesus, you are Lord, then, <laughs> then all the years leading up to those are going to be a little bit purposeless for you. You know, uh, you're going to struggle to find value in real life with all of the things that Jesus calls us to do, and you're not going to see the need to actually follow Jesus as a part of your life like Jesus primarily asked us. He didn't say make converts. He said make disciples, teach people to become like me. It's an entire journey. It doesn't just, it's not just about the soul. That's why it was so important in the early church that, that they um, combated what was called Gnosticism that says Jesus was just a spirit and not physical flesh. They're like, no. What Jesus cares about is the body and the soul co- together. We are a part of remaking the world in God's name. And we, we do it with an eye toward eternity because we've been set free. If you've gotten to know Jesus as Lord to the point of loving him and believing he's the Christ and the one to trust and that what he teaches is valid and that he is the one that brings the kingdom to earth, then you're going to want to follow and imitate. And you're going to want to learn to trust and you're going to want to learn to act like him and you're going to be okay with the hard journey of learning to lay your life down and pick up your cross when it looks like loving in the hard moments, when it looks like faithfulness in the hard moments. Uh, Then we'll finally be able to see God's kingdom as beautiful and gain our lives by losing them, like Jesus says. Uh, So let's not forget that in all of these things, when we have a chance to respond to the question of Jesus like this, who do you say that I am? It is incredibly good news because we are released from the tyranny of our world and the false beliefs of Caesarea Philippi and all of its systems and powers. Uh, We get to trust that because Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, like the locals would have proclaimed. Herod isn't king of the Jews, like the other locals would have proclaimed. Now, Jesus is king over all. Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is God over all. And it sets our hearts straight. Um, and when we do that, when we do that, the purpose of our lives becomes wrapped up in the things that Jesus says are of eternal importance. The posture of the heart. The care for the poor and suffering. The showing of mercy and forgiveness. And the receiving of mercy and forgiveness. Nonviolence toward others. The grace of God washing over us. An identity as a child of God. And the mission of inviting other people into God's love as well. These are the beautiful things that show that we believe Jesus is Lord. All right, but Jesus asks us the question, so that's what we sit with. And I want to really encourage you. Um, I want to encourage you to think for yourself. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? So many of you have been through so much. And, and it's understandably made you cautious to cross lines. But Jesus draws a line and he says, at some point you have to choose. And it's not a line of judgment It's a line of invitation, and he says, do you want to trust me? I want to offer something beautiful to you, but you're going to, at some point, you're going to have to actually define who do you believe that I am? Do you believe that I'm trustworthy? So I want to encourage you to think honestly about that question, and I don't care if you've been a Christ follower for a long time, and this is just, God, keep healing me toward clarity, or maybe if it's like, I've been kind of like on the fence, I've been fence sitting for a long time, and it's time for me to be like, yeah, I trust that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to take a step to get baptized. 
take a step deeper into prayer and a life of discipleship. Oh, so beautiful. It's so, such a thing to celebrate. But it's relevant to all of us. This question never loses relevance, friends. So, let's not ever think that discipleship is not costly, but also let's not ever think that it's not worth every penny. This is good news. Losing our lives with Jesus. Such, such good news. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we can be overwhelmed with a question like this, or we can dismiss it because it's so easy to answer it, obviously. But I, I pray that you would help us each hear your words, hear the compassion in your voice, Lord. Um, help us sort out all of our complicated feelings and thoughts. And help us to trust, like we talked about last week, that you are so deeply good on every level. So may we be like Peter in our head conviction and maybe even our heart conviction, but may we be like you, Lord, in our hands and in our deepest understanding of your kingdom. Help us to experience your good news. Amen.